in those like earlier years, it's not that people are better than you who have successful businesses. It's just that like they're further along. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. And for the last year, I've worked diligently on starting a new business all around helping women get to the root cause of their period problems and hormonal imbalances. If you're suffering from extreme cramps, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my new company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Natalie Gordon, to our show today. Natalie is the founder of Babyless, the fastest growing universal baby registry in the U.S. In 2011, after she closed on her first business and was doing some consulting projects to make ends meet, Natalie came up with the idea of Babylist only two weeks before giving birth to her first child. During her pregnancy, she was unhappy with all the registry services and she didn't find anything that allowed her to register items that she actually wanted as a new parent. The most meaningful gift she could think of then was having someone to help walk her family German Shepherd or a subscription to a cloth diaper service. It was at this point she designed a baby registry site where all parents could ask for things they needed in their unique situation. Over the past 10 years, with relatively little VC funding, Natalie has grown Babylist into the third largest baby registry service online. More than half of U.S. parents registered with Babylist in 2012, creating 1.2 million registries last year alone. The company has doubled in revenue each year for the past three years and is on track to making $250 million in revenue this year. We'll chat with Natalie about how her first quote-unquote failed business set her up for success with Babylist, how she balanced new motherhood with a growing new company, steps she took to scale her business without significant funding, and so much more. Welcome to the show, Natalie. Hi, Yasmin. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I love your story so much because I know Babyless started as a side hustle when you're pregnant with your first son. And it was a product that you slowly built and put it out in the world and slowly improved and improved. And we'll talk so much about this in the interview today. But I'd love to just get your perspective on your own journey. You know, what do you think are two or three fears that a lot of women might have today about starting and putting their body of work out there in the world? Because you did just such a good job with Babylist early, early on. One thing I've really learned over the years is actually putting that thing that you've been working on kind of on a really personal level out there into the world is like such a test of vulnerability. I think that's something I had actually launched a previous startup before Babylist And I remember how nervous I was when that launched. And then actually going through that process was like so good to realize that like people are kind, people don't really care. It's only like the very first step in a journey. 
And even for this reason, if there's anyone in my circle who like launches a Kickstarter or a podcast or something like that, like I want to be the very first person to support them because it's actually, it's so scary. And even naming this is so scary and that's not a reason I should wait another month and make it even more perfect. It'll be just as scary then. Like launching before you think you're ready is it's going to be like that first step. And it is scary. I love that story because I think any body of work, you know, even my experience with this podcast, putting it out there, there's so yeah. much vulnerability, right? It's starting a business. There's so many elements of that. So how did you become comfortable with it? I know you mentioned, you know, writing it down and realizing that the fear might not go away and it's just a matter of jumping in. But any other tactics that you think have really helped you? Because I think that's such a core step in really getting starting any big accomplishment you want in your life? I think I think there are tools and tactics. The thing I named was be really self-aware and be able to name like, this is really scary. I feel scared. One tactic, this is something Amazon's really famous for doing. But before you even start the project, you write what the press release would be. Actually saying like, here's what I actually want to launch into the world. And like, I think actually having that clarity can be very helpful to know that you're actually going to be able to do it. What else? What what kind of things do you, what did you do for podcast episode number one? Oh gosh. I know that's such a great question because I actually was very fearful. I remember <laughs> being very nervous and putting myself out. There it was the first time I've really ever done that. And I think to your point, and this is something I actually have been doing more so as I recently launched my business, is writing down those beliefs and those fears. Because sometimes when you keep it in your head, it seems a lot more overwhelming. So putting it on paper, like you said, there's something that neutralizes that belief or the fear. And the fear will never go away. It's a matter of just putting yourself in the situation like you've done and you continue to do, I'm sure, with Babyless. So I think writing it down and just jumping into it, even if you're still fearful, I mean, that's really courage. And it gets easier in time, right? I mean, yeah, it gets a little gets bit easier. easier. Well, totally. you, even you can recognize that feeling, that feeling yeah. of like, oh, this yeah. is really scary. Yeah. Yeah. The self-awareness. And we'll we'll go into your story a little bit. You talked high level about that first business and there's so many learnings that you had there. So I'm excited to jump into it. So let's start from the very, very early days with your upbringing. You know, did you always envision yourself to be an entrepreneur or how were you as younger Natalie? I definitely did not see myself as an entrepreneur. I don't even see my profile when I listen to podcasts with like great entrepreneurs. I grew up in Canada, very middle-class lifestyle, went to summer camp, played piano. I was pretty good at school. I was pretty smart. I was good at math and ended up going into computer science for college. That was just part of thinking it'd be like a very solid, reliable career path, which it is. I'm a huge proponent for computer science, programming, all of that in general, especially for women and underrepresented people. Out of that college program, ended up taking a job as a software engineer at Amazon. I worked there for about four years, at which time I quit. I had really wanted to travel the world before having kids, before turning 30. And so did a longer trip in Latin America. Yes. Well, there's so much I want to dig into there. So <laughs> you mentioned some things, you know, you went into Amazon and a big element for you in going into computer science and getting that 
very reputable job is, you wanted a reliable career path, right? And I know you were part of the team that launched Amazon Fresh. So I'm sure that was awesome. And it's such a great experience. You know, what was the biggest driver for you to leave this stability and this amazing job to, like you said, you know, you quit and you traveled with your partner at the time, but what was inside of you that wanted you to leave that? Because it seemed like your mentality completely changed from when you first got that job. I had saved money. Like I actually was in like a very stable situation. And I feel silly even saying this, it's common sense, but I had been living below my means. And when you do that, really, when you can save that money, I I was able to do that to do the trip. I think I also had this certainty that I could get another job and that I was employable. And so in terms of risk, it didn't feel that risky. It almost felt riskier to say, I'm going to stay in this job. I'm going to work for the next 20 years. And then maybe when I'm like much older, that's when I would kind of follow these, these things that had been dreams for a very long time. I absolutely love that because I think so many people look at women on my podcast, you know, might look at your story and think, how did you just leave that and jump into this unknown and traveling with your partner and taking that time off? But I think, like you said, you know, living below your means and being able to save, you know, I did that for years. I didn't jump into the world of entrepreneurship until 10 years into my life. So I kept putting Uh that money aside, knowing one day I'm going to do something. But I think that is so key because it looks like a big risk. But if you're able to hedge that risk with saving money and having the confidence to know like, what's the worst case scenario? You can go and get a job, right? Give yourself some time to try something and you're employable or, you know, you'll figure it out somehow. And I, I love that mentality that you had in your own life. So going back to, you know, you quit your job at Amazon and I know you traveled all around, I believe, Latin America. And through that experience, you actually started your first company. So I'd love to hear kind of, you know, what was inspiration for that? And, and then I'll go into some more questions about what really happened with that business. But what was inspiration yeah. around your first company? Well, first of all, when I started that trip, I was pretty burnt out. And so for six months, I did not code. I didn't really create anything. But then I really, I started to get like an itch. And I had this idea. Part of that trip was really to, to learn Spanish and to learn Spanish from fluent Spanish native speakers. And it was like, wouldn't it be great to kind of create a community where individuals in the United States who are learning Spanish can meet people who are learning English, they can have intercambios and kind of like the idea of like meeting online on Skype, let's say, and actually practicing the language because I was finding that so valuable. And so that's what we launched before launching it maybe a week before we launched it, I sent it out to family and friends and really had some hard feedback from a friend, which was like, I think this could just be a really good Facebook group. And it was very hard to hear. And I didn't hear it. It was like, no, no, no. There's like these three reasons why it actually needs to be this separate platform. We launched it. It was called Languajero. And I learned so many things. Like when you're at Amazon, you're working on one small piece of like a great system, but I didn't actually know how do you launch a website from scratch. And so it was very interesting to do that. And then it was very interesting to say kind of after we had created it, oh, how are we going to get people to come to this? My partner and I, we worked on it for, I I think like about a year 
it definitely did gain traction, maybe became a community of 10,000 people. And at the same time, it was a free, free service and really didn't make money in any way. Like it, it really fully was a project, not a business, I'd say for that reason. I think it the month that it made the most money might have been $140. It, it just became something where it wasn't working. It was, but it, we, it was never going to be a job for me and my partner. It was unclear what the next step was. And it was at that time, I actually read The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. And it was actually so visceral because I was like, oh, this is everything that we got wrong with this. Like it just the idea of like a minimal viable product, like how do you kind of build things from there and learn so much. And so it's something that we just like let maintain. A few years later, we ended up shutting it down and turning it into a Facebook group, which was <laughs> ironic. But like I had learned so many things, even about those feelings we were talking about earlier. Like, what does it feel like to launch something? That when I had the idea for Babylist, I was like, oh, this is my chance to get all of these things right. And looking back at that journey, I mean, you mentioned a few things that you learned just from launching. So one of them, just being comfortable and learning how to build a business from scratch. Because like you said, at Amazon, you're one element of this big beast. And I think that's super important if you want to start a business just to kind of really learn what goes into it. And then, you know, a second one you briefly mentioned, I'd love for you to talk more about is you had awareness, you had around 10,000 people, but it wasn't something that you guys can monetize. So did you guys try different elements? Or at what point did you realize this is not something we can pursue? It was a really, I'd say it was a genuinely hard decision. And the decision felt like, are we going to give up? Is this something we should shut down? Or like these things are working, like should we take it further? I'm sh- I think that this is actually a really common decision. I- I'd say that entrepreneurs and anyone really creating something has. I think the the key thing is that it didn't really have this product market fit. That's kind of what it feels like when you don't have something with product market fit, which is also really talked about in this book, The Lean Startup. Like it feels like you're pushing the boulder up the hill rather than like kind of rolling the boulder like down a hill. I really had this software engineer mentality to it, which is, oh, if like we need to keep people on the site for longer so that like people can have more of these conversations, we should build an entire flashcard system. Or or just like we need to make this look like a general language learning thing, which is really like building a feature, but like actually not solving this problem around like monetization, distribution, like the stuff that was really going to determine whether the business could be successful. It's something I see software engineers turn entrepreneurs do often because that's what you're your toolkit is. And you mentioned something that I actually really love and I want to underscore, you know, thinking about the product market fit, you tried for so long and it felt like you were pushing a ball right up the mountain. And I think sometimes, you know, speaking to just friends who have launched businesses, you know, they've tried for a few years and at some point they're like, it's just not the right thing. It's time to do a serious pivot or just start something new. And I love, and we'll go into babyless in a bit is, you know, if you do have that product market fit, if it doesn't feel as heavy, right? It's like the ball is (laughs) 
slowly rolling. It's not like you have it perfect, but yeah. you aren't pushing it up the mountain. So I actually really love that analogy and it's helpful. It might not be a, a steep mountain, but like it, it, there's a downward slope. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes you feel, no, I love that. Especially as someone who's like in deep of building a business, that's really helpful to hear. Going back to Babyless, you know, you mentioned you guys winded down the language company. It eventually became a Facebook group. So take us back to when you, I believe you moved back to San Francisco or back to the States and how the inspiration of this side hustle, side project of Babylist came to mind. Yeah, we actually moved back to Canada, to Vancouver, BC. And so we're living in this new city. That's when I got pregnant with my first son. It was actually like a pretty like isolating and lonely time. I was doing contract work or like consulting for an early stage startup in the Bay Area during this time, like making some money that way. It wasn't going that well. Like I didn't really like it. It was kind of around the time of Farmville. If you remember back then, I guess it was just 10 years ago. And so I was like writing code that like spam people's Facebook pages. It was just like, and that's what Farmville is. Yeah. (laughs) It was just this time of Facebook where everyone was trying to go viral on Facebook and it was being done through this like really like spammy features. And so I was writing those spammy features. Very uninspiring. (laughs) And it was making me really grouchy. It was a hard time. And I, I ended up kind of stopping that work a couple of months before having my son. So I was actually quite pregnant at this point. And like had some free time and I had the idea for baby list and it truly came from like what I wanted to see in the world because I was creating my baby registry for any listeners, a baby registry, it like works like a wedding registry. You ask for the things that you really need for your baby. And then around the time of your baby shower, you share it out with friends and family and they'll choose items from the list. And so Most traditionally, baby registries are hosted by a single retailer, or that's what it looked like back then. So I was deciding between like the Babies R Us baby registry or the Walmart baby registry and adding the items to the lists. And it was just like, oh, this does not feel like this is kind of embarrassing to send out to everybody. Like this doesn't look good. And also the feeling of like, there are these things that we want even maybe as much as like the the things like the car seat and the stroller. We really would like people to contribute a month to a diaper service. That would be like really meaningful to our family. Another meaningful gift for our family, we had a German shepherd who needed to be walked at 7 a.m. And so it's like, wouldn't it be really special if someone could come over at 7 a.m. and like walk our German shepherd in those first couple of weeks? And so that was really the idea for Baby List. And I, I could just like picture it in my mind. It didn't feel like that big. And it was going to be this opportunity to get everything right that I'd gotten wrong in the previous project. I think I've, even at this time, this was not true, but I'd been like, I think I can do this in one week. And really it took, it took a couple of months and I partnered with a designer online and we launched the first version of it about two weeks before I actually had my son. This was in February of 2011. It kind of felt like that downhill. Like, I think I had done things right where it was definitely a minimal viable product. I had done outreach to 
blogs, like even before it launched, I had really tried to think about like that initial distribution. But when we it launched on day one, there was no way to give a gift. And, and I said, I will build that feature like when people are actually using it and they're actually our users. And there were users and we built it very quickly afterwards. But the, it felt like that like downhill. And I, you mentioned like the monetization was built in through really traditional affiliate programs. I think I had mentioned... Lenguajero had made maybe $140 in its biggest month. Babylist in its like first month made about that much money. And that was with like a handful of baby registries, like very early adopters who had chosen to use it. And so it felt really clear that like, oh, if we can get more people to use that, this will make more money. And like then kind of on a month over month basis, more people used it. It was still so few. And I was doing everything. So it was coding new features, doing all the customer support, doing all the marketing, like every single aspect of the business. So I had my son and this was when I had a newborn and then a a baby and really like felt very isolated. And this was this very interesting thing to think about at the beginning, had a goal that if I could spend 45 minutes on it in a day, that was like a great day. And then kind of later in that first year, hired a babysitter who came over and I paid with money that Babylist was making. And she would come over for two or three hours and I would go to a coffee shop around the corner. And so it was really, that was that first year. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. I wanted to tell you a quick story. Before I started this podcast, I was working extremely long and crazy hours in banking and then in tech. I was totally burnt out, not living my truth and dreaming of always building my own empire. With all of this stress, it came really debilitating periods from bloating, cramping, extreme breast tenderness, and really unpredictable moods. I would always complain to my friends that I was literally out of commission for at least a week every single month. And that adds up to three months in every year. Other than feeling frustrated that my really bad periods were keeping me from pursuing my actual goals, I knew that something wasn't right. Women are not inherently designed to suffer every single month. That's when I learned about hormonal imbalances. I started working with functional medicine doctors who told me that years of stress combined with taking birth control pills long-term created a cascade of hormonal damage in my body. This is why I felt bloated, tired, crampy, and moody before and throughout my period. They recommended I try something called seed cycling. And let me tell you, it's changed my life. Seed cycling is the simple process of using food as medicine to naturally support your hormones. It uses four different types of seeds, yes, actual seeds, throughout your menstrual cycle to support the balance of hormones like progesterone and estrogen and give your body critical nutrients it needs to achieve your best health. Within weeks of starting this process, I noticed major shifts in my period and my overall health. But I also noticed that seed cycling is actually kind of hard to do. I wanted the best quality seeds, freshly ground in the right amount, but it was very time consuming. So I decided to create a simple and effective way for anyone to start seed cycling today using the highest quality organic seeds in the right amounts with the right support. It's called Bia, and I'm so excited to bring it to you. Now, anyone struggling with hormonal imbalances can easily incorporate 
incorporate seed cycling into their busy schedule with the BS Seed Cycling Bundle. This process has been life-changing for me. I no longer deal with cramps, bloating, breast tenderness, or any other PMS symptoms before my period. It's been a complete game changer, and it's allowed me to focus on things that matter most to me, like this podcast and building my own empire. And most importantly, I want this for you too. If you or anyone you know has been struggling with hormonal imbalances or bad periods, go to beawellness.com slash free. Once again, it's beawellness.com slash free to download our free guide to our top tips in tackling hormonal imbalances and to learn more about our seed cycling bundle. We included this link in the show notes along with a promo code for $10 off for all of our Behind Her Empire listeners. I know you're going to love seed cycling just as much as I do. Thanks for listening. And now let's get back to the show. You know, you talk a lot about like doing that one thing every day that moves your business forward. So you had this newborn, you were spending 45 minutes a day. It's super impressive to see how with just an hour, you know, 45 minutes, an hour a day, you made pretty good progress with Babyless. So looking back at the time, you know, how did you prioritize what really needed to happen? Do you think having a baby and just having minimal time allowed you to really focus on what is a priority for us to maybe move the needle a little bit forward? Yeah, I think during this time, it wasn't very strategic. It was very reactive. And so what it would look like is I was doing customer support. So I'd be like, oh, there are like three or four customer support emails. Oh, this one email, she's saying that like this language here on the registry is confusing. Let me change that language, ship that out, fix that very small bug, and then reply back to that customer. So I I think you're going to get more done when you actually have a strategic roadmap. But in this case, it really was that really iterative, listen to something a customer wants, And then like, see if there's like something small you can do to kind of solve for that, that I do think was very being that close to the customers. And this was not just that first year, it was for a number of years that I did all of our customer support really went into like me and like eventually our team just like really understanding who our user is. So, so important. You've also mentioned in another interview that you had pretty low aspirations for BabyList and you thought, you know, maybe it'd be a side project that would bring you some passive income. So, you know, you mentioned you were doing, you know, that $100 a first month relative to your old business. So that was probably a big win. But at what point did you realize like something is here? This could be a potential business for me to go full-time and you eventually brought in a nanny, but what was that moment where you decided this is more than just this side hustle and could bring more than just passive income? That's a great question. It was really based on actually knowing I wanted to be really there mostly full-time with my son for one year, and then I was going to go back to work. That was the plan. And so as we neared that one year mark, and that was the default thing I was going to do, made the decision that if Babylist was making, I think it was $3,000 a month, there was something there that this was like could be a real business. And so it actually had to do with that one year, like kind of countdown. And then actually like Babylist did hit that, I think maybe at month 11. And so it was like, great, there's like something here. I'm going to be able to go to this full time rather than get that job. And like, I'm going to try to make this a real business. 
I love that. And, you know, you mentioned how you reached out early on to blogs at the time, right, to help with the distribution of Babylist. How else were you creating awareness or what really hit for you? Was it word of mouth? Was it those initial blogs you talked about? Because hitting that three grand a month is pretty, pretty good for the first year of launching the business. I'd say kind of general answer is I'd say like every phase of the business, there's been something different that really like helped us grow. And I'd say in that first phase, it was really, where are you going to find these early adopters? It it was like some pregnancy blogs, some baby blogs, some minimal Google AdWords. I think like it might have been actually the next stage where it was kind of partnering on giveaways with other similarly sized brands kind of targeted at this audience. Those were the key things. Like started really working on SEO kind of at day one and really trying to be there for baby registry or universal baby registry. I think you make a good point in terms of when you're launching a business, especially something that's so unique and not really out there in the world. It's all about finding those early adopters who are excited about what you're building. You know, sometimes people will feel less motivated if they can't convert everybody. And it's like, focus on the people that love what you're doing already and those early adopters, because it gives you confidence and you can really hone in your product with these people that love what you're building versus trying to hit the masses so early on. So it sounds very basic, but it's just such an important thing to remind yourself if you're launching something unique and disruptive. I guess I think this is kind of on the side of luck. The nature of Babylist is that it's viral. Because when you use it and you have a baby shower, 20 friends, 30 friends, 50 friends, all like interact with the products, come to your baby shower. And so that like really, I'd say field growth, like over the entire decade. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, even with my friends now, I'm in the age where everybody's beginning to have kids. I just see babyless everywhere. I'm like, this is amazing. Yeah. So it's amazing to see in the past 10 years, you know, how much of an impact you guys are making and really leading the efforts, I think, in the world of baby registries and more. But so going back to, you know, the first year you're in, you're like, okay, something viable is here. I think I'm going to start putting my money in towards having a nanny so I can really focus my efforts on this full time. I know you ended up joining an accelerator, 500 startup. So I'd love to hear more about what was the inspiration for that? And, you know, how was your just general overall experience there? Okay, so also in that time, about that time when it was the one year mark, our family moved to the Bay Area. So now for the very first time, we're living like where I'd say, everyone's in tech, everyone's an entrepreneur, it's just like a very different environment. Living in the Bay Area for the first time, like I wasn't well connected to that environment around me. I I knew of accelerator programs. I had heard of 500 startups. At some point, I realized they had like open enrollment. And maybe in the past, you had had to have a referral to like get in. But this was the first time that you could just fill out a form and they would evaluate your startup. So I didn't have that referral. And so I, I spent time on the application, really describing what Babylist was, what traction we had. I had an interview and I was so nervous, so nervous. And then um, I was accepted into the program. I was so, I, I was so nervous. It was like, it was a crazy time. I think it was starting in one week. I only had childcare for my son, like four days a week. It was going to be like, I'll, it was in the Bay area, but like with a rather long commute. 
And so it's just like, okay, this like three, four month period is going to be really intense, really intense for our family. But like, this is what I'm going to do. And it was like, it was exciting. It was scary. It was a fantastic program. People would ask me like, what was it like doing it? Like as a, as a mom, as like a mom of a baby and really I found the most difficult thing actually to be like a solo founder. Like I I was kind of in this accelerator program with people who maybe had like four people working on a company and with just me, it felt like very overwhelming. And that was the time that I really, Babyless became more than me. Like it's the time when we actually hired some people and then out of that program, raised us a seed round. So about $600,000 seed round, which really changed the ambitions, I'd say, of Babyless. Going back to, you know, you have mentioned, and as you talked about right now, that that time period was very, very hard for you. And it was overwhelming. So do you think you being in that accelerator program and seeing, you know, you are a solo founder, other people at teams, did that really motivate you to take those funds, you know, your profits to hire a small team versus before it was just you? Because I know when you're very early in a business, right, you're like, okay, should I just work harder, work longer versus hiring someone? Like, what do you think that was a big motivation for you to hire a small team early on? It might be. It might be because of how busy it felt. And it was turning into the kind of busy where it didn't feel like I was moving the business forward. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like you could be busy all day, but feel like you weren't doing the things that you actually should be doing. You're really taking me back because I had no idea how to hire a first employee. Like just no idea how to have that conversation, find that person, interview that person, set them up for success. Like there was a very steep learning curve there. And when you are doing this thing, that's like very ambiguous, difficult. You're weighing it against like, I could just be doing this work myself, but like, you've got to figure out how to do it. And like, it does get much, much easier. But like that first time was very confusing. But to me, it felt very clear that this is going to be a team. I do need to figure that out. I do need to hire people. And that was kind of the, I'd say like out of the program, maybe we were a team of like five working out of a co-working space in the mission in San Francisco. Incredible. And you learned so much from your experience at 500 Startups. Like looking back at their, that experience, are there one or two lessons that you learned? You know, I'm sure your business model was incredibly refined at the time. It's such an amazing program. But any lessons that you can share with our listeners from you going through that experience from, you know, babyless pre-500 Startups to after 500 Startups? I feel like something that I've had to learn again and again and again, and that was that first time, was how do you talk about this business? Like, how do you talk about this business so people are excited? How do you talk about this business? Because I think you could look at Babyless and just be like, oh, this is pretty small. It's for like a very, like women. It's like a small women company. Like, what's the interesting thing there? And so actually being to articulate like, no, this is the audience and they're changing all of their brand preferences. And like, there's actually being able to tell that story. Like they really push you to articulate that. And I'd say like, that was not like the time when I learned that I've had to learn that like over and over and over in the past 10 years. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's something like we think a lot about right now, even our business and just to hear how it continuously changes, right? I could imagine. And we hear this a lot on a lot of the women on our podcast is 
It's like, how do you articulate your story and really the big vision around what you're bringing, right? I think that's just a good reminder for all of us listening is like seeing what you're up to today. I mean, you guys have built an incredible business that is continuously growing year over year. So it's cool to see that really come to life. And so you mentioned, you know, one thing that is a theme in just your overall growth of the business is you've never really focused too much on raising capital. I know the first round after 500 startups, you raised a small seed round, but I'd love to kind of hear your perspective on fundraising and, you know, how that first fundraise really went for you in the business. I didn't really know what I was doing. I like looked back recently at my monthly investor emails from that time and they are so naive. I think it was six months of every investor update being like, going to close the seed round this month, money will hit the bank. And like, it wasn't. So it was kind of trial by fire that first time. And then all of my energy was really into building this company. And it was like hard, like that team of five people, like that was, that stretched me. It stretched me as a leader. I had never managed people before. And the business was really working. Like the business every month was making more money than the month before. We were growing. Things were going well. And kind of, I'd say during almost every year of the last 10 years, like was profitable. And so it felt, it, it's kind of felt at all points like wow, this is a pretty big team and like really managing this team and like making good decisions is hard right now. And we're making more money than we're spending. So there's not like some need that we have to like keep going or to really realize the vision to fundraise. I'd say over the the last 10 years, we did raise money in early 2018, and then actually last week announced like a rather a, a more a much more significant raise, um, which was 40 million dollars. Big congrats! And so thank you. We have raised money, but like there are companies that are like very similar in size to ours who have raised significantly more money to kind of get to that same stage. I think for us. It's even, it's not about raising the money. It's saying like, what kind of business do we want to be and who are we? And then saying like, is that lost if we raise money? And so with us, it was actually like very important in this recent fundraise to bring on an investor who is completely aligned with how fast we see scaling the business in the future and the things we want to do. We did not want to attract an investor where once they were an investor would say like, you're growing too slow. Like, why are you profitable? These things that really are important to us to maintain. Sure. Totally. I mean, it's amazing because, you know, I know you are on track to hit 250 million in revenue this year mm -hmm. and you raised 40 million. And like you said, you know, there's so many businesses that might be at your level that have raised so much more, but, you know, to really grow slowly, you know, it's been 10 years with pretty remarkable what you've built over the past 10 years. So congratulations for that. One thing that I'd love to ask you in the past year in an interview that you recently had about COVID, right? I mean, baby showers are an in-person event. And I know you were a little bit worried, like what is going to happen with the business? Because at that point, you know, we didn't even know what the world was going to look like. So yeah. take me back to last year and really what was going through your mind and some of the pivots that you guys had around BabyList. That time was so intense and is so memorable. 
it was that I'm just like thinking back. It was really, our team was all in the office and I have like very vivid memories kind of a couple of weeks before lockdown that our leadership team all sat in a conference room, all like breathing the same air (laughs) and wrote on the, on the, on a whiteboard, like, what are the risks to the business? What are the opportunities for the business? What's this going to mean for our users? What's this going to mean for our vendors? What does this mean for our employees? And really like tried to like have a brainstorm and like name what, what, what this meant for us. Because my big fear, I had run this business for about 10 years and I felt like I knew, I understood our user. I understood the dynamics on the baby shower. You have this in-person party and you share out your baby registry. And I was like, I have no idea what people are going to do now. Like, I, I don't know what the behavior is going to be. I would guess that people are not going to have baby showers or less people will. And my guess is you don't need a baby registry if you don't have a baby shower, or that's what my fear was. And so we were really preparing for, for like the worst, for real headwinds. And I guess we, we kind of spent that month of March and April kind of pausing. Our whole team went remote. We have so many parents on our team. And really paused some really big, you know, like the big, ambiguous, cross-functional projects. We said, this is like, we're going to put a pin in this. This is not the type of thing our team can work on right now and make successful. 2020 was going to be the year that we learn about physical retail. Like we just had a, a roadmap to like do as much learning as we could. It said, we're going to put a pin in all of that. And we're going to work on like, shorter tactical projects that like people can launch. We are working remotely actually pretty effectively. And I think like our, I'm just so proud of our team. Like in that crisis, when our team members were in this crisis, we knew that our, our users, they are like eight months pregnant and going through a pandemic. And so it was like, what can we do to support them? And we did a series of things around that just to help our users an amazing flight of content, tools to have virtual baby showers. You could actually like have that shower over Zoom. There's a a small thing. There's like a registry discount. So you can like purchase all the things people haven't purchased for you. And we gave everyone their registry discount early because like things were out of stock and shipping and deliveries were so slow. I'm just like so proud of the team during that time. And then... What we actually saw, I think because of this like shift to to online and because I think people really wanted to help more, like during this time, you want to like really help like your friends and family, just like actually a huge tailwind in like people using the registry, the engagement of the registry, the number of gifts given on the registry, like every single metric just like went up in, in a pretty significant way. And so... 2020 really had this tailwind that like has maintained into this year as we've been coming out of COVID. It's incredible. I think the revenue grew, what, 80% from last year during COVID or some ridiculous amount? (laughs) 2020 over 2021 was more than 100%. And then 2021 over 2020, yeah, it was 80%. 
Incredible. I mean, at that time in March or, you know, when you were very fearful, what's going to happen with baby showers? And that also reminds me of your time at 500 Startups of just being fearful, being a solo founder. Like, how have you dealt with these really difficult turning points in your life? You mentioned being a solo founder. It's tough. Even having a team, there's only so much you can confine in them. You can't tell your team, like, I'm freaking out right now. You know, I don't know what we're going to do. How do you kind of deal with your mental state at that time? I think those two times felt different. The 500 startups felt like stressful and exciting. This was a pandemic for everyone. <laughs> like I felt I felt great responsibility, but also like what's in my control and what's not in my control, like going through this. And so I think that time was incredibly difficult, even for me personally. That was difficult for everyone. Like I had kids at home we kind of had like higher level values as a leadership team. It was like, we're going to be really clear with our team about like what's happening with the health of the business. So I I was going to do everything I could so that this business, I was never actually worried that the business was like in existential risk. I was worried we would have to lay off team members. And so it, it was like the, the thing we can provide for team members is let them know like what's the good, what's the bad of like what's happening. And so we started having like a, a meeting every two weeks where we'd say, you know what, this stuff went really badly. This other stuff went okay. The business is going to be like, you should feel confident in the business. Or like, you should actually be like pretty, we're, we're actually genuinely concerned about the business. And so we committed to having that level of transparency with our team so that like people weren't guessing or they didn't feel like we were saying everything's great. And then if we had to like lay off any team members, there'd, there'd be a real disconnect. But you told me everything was going great. I think our business, I'd say this is true about me and the business. Like we have an uncomfortable level of focus and it's actually like very key to us having like a pretty good work-life balance. Like we don't do most things. And we really like focus on doing a few things really well. And so during this time saying, don't work on that, don't work on that, don't work on that. We're going to stop doing that. But like, this is the thing we're really going to try to get right. I think also is like the kind of, maybe like the kind of leadership people really needed at that time. Thinking about how you guys are a high growth business, and you mentioned you have a pretty good work-life balance, which is amazing to hear. How do you stay focused? You know, now you have a team, a massive team, and I'm sure it's always changing of priorities and, you know, what to focus on. But any insights or advice you have for someone who's building their business and feels like there's so much going on day to day, even going back to when you launched Babyless, like that one thing you're focusing on, it seems like that's one of your superpowers is focus. But any advice as someone who's now leading, you know, over a hundred million dollar business on staying focused on what really matters and moves the needle? There was a time in the past 10 years, this might've even been longer, maybe like six or seven years ago. And I felt burnt out and I was like, okay, maybe I should try to try to sell the company. This is, I, I'm burnt out. This is stressful. And I was like, do you know what? It's actually better for the company if I don't sell it. Like, this isn't a sprint. This is a marathon. And like me staying at this company and really like committing to growing it long-term is better for the company than if I sold it right now. And kind of out of that, really tried to make this like nine to five job. Let's say like 
8.30 to 5.30 job with like a couple of hours on the weekend. And that, that actually became our culture. And I actually, I never really believed like as a software engineer, you don't get more done in 60 hour work weeks than like 45 hour work weeks. You just don't get like more good work done. Like you get great work done when you grind really hard for like four to six hours in a day and like go to a meeting or two, like that's a great day. You're not going to get more done if you stay at work until nine or 10 PM. So I had this deep belief. And so it's turned into our company culture where we're really able to attract great people who are great. Like they want all of the excitement and ambiguity and hard problems that come with like a fast growing business, but they like want to do it with grownups. <laughs> like they don't want to feel like they have to put in FaceTime. And like, we have real signifiers of this. Like we don't slack in the evenings, people that aren't sending emails on the weekends. Like I think it, and it's really helped us, I would say attract great talent and like, Great talent wants to work with great talent. So that actually came from really this like personal decision that was really a business decision. One thing you just named was like, oh, how do you manage changing priorities? I think you actually try to like not change priorities. You try to have the right priorities. And then if your priorities are changing, you're really explicit about the change. And so I think this like focus, it's saying not yet, like every great idea. And it's saying like, here's what we're really trying to move forward this week, this quarter, this year, and here's how we're measuring it. And I think like that is something that we've done very well as a business. I love that. I mean, to hear, because like you said, you know, starting and running a business is very different than working for someone like at an Amazon or in my world, like investment banking, where you clock in a lot of hours. Yeah. But when you're running something of your own, it's it's a marathon, right? It's like, how do you maintain your mental health and excitement? Yes. And if you're burnt out, it's just not going to be it's like, like you said, you wanted to sell. It's not ex- yeah. it's not as exciting. And I think, you know, just even me being now a year, we launched our product three months ago, but it's been a year in the making. I'm realizing that now it's like, there's only so much you can push yourself and being burnt out doesn't make it exciting. And it doesn't move the needle forward even sometimes. So like seeing you as an example, seeing, you know, the priorities and the focus and really working on what matters is really key. And having that work-life balance, I think is so important to think clearly, to come up with good ideas. And it's really empowering to see, you know, such a successful business like yours, because you hear it often, but you don't see, you know, that's why I I love this podcast because we get to share these examples and provide people the confidence that you don't need to kill yourself to create a successful business. You know, there is of such thing as work-life balance. So I love, I love to hear that. Well, Natalie, I want to close on one last question, you know, looking at your career and looking at that young 20, 21 year old who was wanting to jump out and do something new and build something, you know, what would you tell your 21 year old self and what do you wish you knew at the time now being in the position you are today? I don't know what the advice is. This is a little bit fuzzy, but I actually really want to say it to your audience. Like I've been the same person over the past 10 years. Like I, I've been the same and I've definitely learned a lot in the past 10 years, but I haven't become someone new. And the way people treated me 10 years ago 
compared to the way people treat me now is like very, very different. Because now I can say my business had this much revenue and there's like a, oh, like you must be like, you just like, you must be like, really know what's going on. You must be really just read a lot of things into that. But like the thing was, I'm just at a different point in my own path. It's not that like I was uh, less 10 years ago. I was just at a different point in like this trajectory. And so I think I'd like say that to your audience. Like, let's say they're in those like earlier years. It's not that people are better than you who have successful businesses. It's just that like they're further along. Just kind of going into that point is like, you comparing yourself to someone who might be further along, you guys are on different paths, right? Like the first business you started, you were learning like, what does it take to start a business? How do you create awareness? And you comparing yourself to someone else who might be bigger, like they might've done that 10 years ago, right? It doesn't make sense to compare your journey, but it's really beautiful to hear because I think you need to grow and learn and become that person who will eventually run that $100 million business, right? You have been incrementally growing to grow and scale the business. So I think that's really awesome to hear. And um, it just kind of reminds me, like looking back at when you started the business, was there anyone who was like, Natalie, you're crazy. I don't know what you're building or anyone really doubting you. Just it would be interesting, you know, obviously them looking at you uh-huh. today, very successful with this amazing business. But anyone who is in your orbit who doubted you when you first launched? I don't know about people who are currently in my orbit. I remember every <laughs> rejection from the seed investment. Like I, I remember vividly those conversations. And now with the business at its current size, like we we're the best investment for our our seed investors, like have done very well. And that feels fantastic. Like it just, it does feel really good. It feels yeah. as good as you think. <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And when, you know, th- like raising that seed round is so tough, but how did you kind of deal with those rejections when you were getting, I mean, did you have that confidence and gut feeling that you were going to create something because you were the user, you knew the problem? Did that ever sway you, those rejections in any way and doubt yourself? I don't think I doubted myself. I definitely doubted, is this like a VC fundable business? I actually believed in the business. It was making money. I was going to keep doing it. So it actually had much more to do with the fundraise than like an existential like threat to the actual business. I think that that would be much harder if it was like, I can't do this business unless I'm convincing investors. That would have a lot more emotional weight. So I think I was maybe able to make it have less weight. Yes. I mean, it's very empowering to know you can make money through a business and it's profitable. I think that gives you a lot of security when you're taking this leap into something new, just being able, even if it's like a hundred customers, knowing that you have something that's profitable and it could work is really, really, I'm sure gives you a lot more confidence. But Natalie, this was awesome. I could talk to you for so much longer, but thank you so much for joining us and sharing your incredible story. I can't wait to continue to see Babyless thrive and see what you guys are up to next. So it is such an honor to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. This was so great. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. 
We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.